Jace Robertson of Duck Dynasty fame, recommends waiting and rereading for 30 seconds anything you've written before posting it to social media. You like this 30-second rule? Hold on, Nick. Hold on. Sorry, I'm up. I'm updating my Facebook page. I found this sweet cat meme. Hold on. And send. Sorry, what was the question? Ah, never mind. This is Swordplay. Welcome to Swordplay. We are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I am Alex Flood. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, 2 Timothy chapter 3. And let this be a reminder to the audience, go and read 2 Timothy chapter 3. It'd be better if you read the whole book of 2 Timothy, but if anything, at least read chapter 3 for this episode. You'll get acquainted with the text and at least be familiar with the questions we're going to bring up. Nick, what questions do we have today? Well, let's start off with uh, verse 1. Paul talks about the last days. Um, what are the last days? Are we living in the last days? And if so, what does all that mean? That's a good question, Nick. Uh, we've seen this language before in our podcast. Back in Jude, uh, verse 18, 2 Peter, uh, chapter 3, verse 3, there are other New Testament references that can be seen as well. So the last time is mentioned in 1 Peter 1, 5, Jude, verse 18. The last times, plural, um, is mentioned in 1 Peter 1, 20. The last days mentioned in John chapter 6, verses 39 through 54, chapter 11, verse 24, chapter 12, verse 48. The last days, plural, is mentioned in 2 Timothy 3, 1, Hebrews 1, 2, James 5, 3, 2 Peter 3, 3. Contextually, Nick, for what we're doing today, 2 Timothy chapter 3, it's hard to separate the last days of this verse from Paul's other talk in the letter of that day. Remember chapter 1, verse 12 and verse 18, and right. now chapter 3, verse 1, later chapter 4, verse 8. So although end times language can be used... To describe the end of a nation, this particular context uh, does seem to point towards the day of Christ's return at the resurrection. But having said that, I am left wondering, how do I frame this passage? So, if one can point to difficult times in almost any era of history, what makes this era, the Christian era, the last times, that's so far going on 2,000 years, what makes it more distinct or distinctly more difficult than previous eras. So I'm left wondering that, I don't know. But from an alternative view, under the preterist perspective, this last day language could be pointing towards the destruction of Jerusalem and the increased persecution of Christians at the hands of the Jews, both internal and external, leading up to AD 70. So under this view, here's how you would have to interpret it then. The reward that Paul is talking about waiting for him and the reward that he wants also to be given to Onesiphorus from chapter 1 the rewards of those people it'll be a special reward specifically because they're going to be martyrs Hmm. so under this idea uh, Paul would be calling or implying Timothy's submission for martyrdom or possible martyrdom in this letter so what would be the special reward of a martyr It would be the immediate presence of a heavenly state and a heavenly body. And that would be before the end of time, before the resurrection. 
And this might be what you see in the book of Revelation, when the martyrs under the altar in Revelation 6, they're given white robes, they're told to wait a little longer. Right. Later in chapter 7, God covers them with his tabernacle. Peter uses that tabernacle language to talk about his body in Second Peter chapter 1, while the rest of the faithful believers are going to be awaiting in Abraham's bosom or Hades or paradise, whatever you want to call it, awaiting the day of resurrection. So that's an alternative perspective. I, I find some merit in that. I thought it was interesting. Throw it out there for the audience. What do you think, Nick, about this last day's business? Yeah, uh, when people hear that phrase, the last days, uh, they may think that it refers to like the, the days right before Jesus' second coming. And so that really doesn't work because this is Paul like 2,000 years ago. And I know he kind of expected the second coming of Jesus to happen at any moment. But really, in the New Testament, you went through the whole gamut of all the different references there. Uh, whenever that phrase, the last days or the last time or the last times or what have you, is used, it usually refers to the completed work of Christ on the cross, complete with his resurrection. And so you have the whole let's call it the exaltation event, crucifixion, burial, resurrection, also the ascension gets in there as well. That whole exaltation event from that time all the way to his final coming, whenever that is, in the future. So Christ's exaltation inaugurated the last days. And so you use Peter in his epistle. Also, he talks about it in uh, his sermon on Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verse 16, actually quoting from Joel chapter 2, an Old Testament book. Uh, yeah, you have right. the writer of Hebrews talking about in these last days he's spoken to us by his son. You have the apostle John talking about this is the last hour, the last hour, 1 John 2, verse 18. And all of these use that phrase or cognate of it in that same way of from exaltation to his final coming these are the last so so just as paul and timothy and the whole first century crew just as they were living in the last days we also can say that we're living in the last days at least that's the way uh, i uh, understand how that phrase is being used here in second timothy does that make sense yeah so you're saying from that perspective the last days are this you know from the cross till now going on two thousand years yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, that makes sense, and that's definitely a legitimate perspective to have. Nick, there are a bunch of sins listed in verses 2 through 5. Yeah, there are. And uh kind of wondering, you know, what's the rhyme or reason going on here in this list? Is it is it specific? Does Paul have people in mind, or is it general, or is it a jumble? What is it? Uh, I think there's like 19, 18, 19, 20 different sins here. I, I should have counted before, but... Yeah, I, um, I think that's about right, somewhere around 20. So there's a lot, a lot, a lot in here. And some of these terms, they are grouped kind of in pairs. Some of them start with like the same sound or a similar sound in the original language. Other than that, there's not really a lot of rhyme or reason. And it seems like Paul does this sometimes, where he just he'll go on a rant about just how awful the times are with all the sin in the world, and there's examples of this in Romans 1, 29-31, Timothy 1, 9 and 10. There's similar lists in those texts. And, and so the lists are similar, but they're different. And some they have some of the same highlights, 
but they're placed in different positions. Um, one writer did note that all the sins start, though, it seems, with that very first one in verse 2, where they are lovers of self. Huh. It's kind of interesting that that kicks off this list here. And um, uh, I ran across another quote that someone said, when the gravity, excuse me, when the center of gravity an individual shifts from God to self, a plethora of sins can spring up. So, again, just kind of that view is everything, those other, you know, 18, 19 other sins flow from that first one on the list. So that could yeah. be a way of looking at it. You say? So they're selfish. They don't care how other people feel. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which makes it easy for them to hurt other people. You know, I I think that Paul does seem to have a specific group in mind, but um, perhaps these kinds of people will always be around us. So there are definite points of overlap with the other passages uh, of lists and things that we've talked about in previous podcasts. I mean, here's what we've talked about in our podcast so far. Go back to Jude uh, verse 4 and following. Second John 1, 7 and following. Third John 1, 9 and following. Second Peter 2, 1 and following. Titus 1, 15 and following. Second Thessalonians 2, 11 and following. I mean, yeah. like, almost every podcast we've done has a list or a reference to some pretty bad guys. And so you can hardly escape a New Testament epistle without finding extremely dangerous people, internal threats in the form of imposters and wolves that are in sheep's clothing. Here's some interesting notes. So I, I don't know if there's an overall theme to the list, unless these are specific people he has in mind and this fits them to the T. Maybe he's, you know, this maybe this fits Humanaeus. Maybe this fits Philetus. I don't know. But a couple interesting things. Uh, mine says one of the uh, sins here, malicious gossips from verse 3. The uh, Greek there is literally diaboloi, devils. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, another verse that says they are haters of good. It's also in verse 3. Um, the greek lexicons that i consulted said that it's it's the idea of the hating of the public good you know what's good for everybody mm. they hate it um also this captivating weak women i know we'll get more into that in a moment but this seems to have some touch points with second peter chapter 2 verses uh, 14 and 18 and so i just wanted to read second peter chapter 2 verses 14 and 18 to get it in the reader's mind for when we get there uh, the the bad guys in second peter it says in 214 they have eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin enticing unstable souls having a heart trained in greed accursed children verse 18 it says for speaking out arrogant words of vanity they entice by fleshly desires by sensuality those who have barely escaped from the ones who live in error i think there might be some connections there to those bad guys and these bad guys hmm. but speaking of bad guys how does disobedience to parents fit in the context of evil men nick when i put my son in time out does he fit in this category <laughs> you know i think it's probably more akin to what we see in the ministry of jesus when you had the pharisee he confronts the pharisees um Mark 7, Matthew 15, he confronts them with their own sin, that they were refusing to take care of their parents. 
because they were saying, look, what I would have used to help you out, Mom and Dad, it's already given to God. It's Corbin. Right. And so they were dishonoring their parents. I think it's probably more akin to that, this idea of disobedient to parents. Um, what do you think? I think that's exactly right. I think that that's the, really the only thing to go off of in the New Testament in their context to see what's going on here. Likely speaking to adult children, like you said, who have an obligation to take care of their elderly parents. You know, the widow who gives her last mite to the temple is a shameful thing. Yeah. It's not a story. It's not a story about generous giving. It's preached. What? <laughs> it's preached hey, And by way. the way, I've preached that sermon, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm sure we've all been there, you know. That's sort of just the the... I don't know. That's just become the natural teaching of it. But that's really, that's not what the passage is about. You're right. The widow should not be down to her last might. The widow should be taken care of if she's faithful by the temple treasury and by her living adult children. And so the fact that she's down to her last might gives it to God shows you that this is what happens when the religious leaders plunder widows' households, when they make traditions to snake money away from the, the adult children through yeah. traditions like uh, Corbin. She's she's given it to God, but it's really she's she's giving it to this juggernaut religious system. Right. That just as you're saying, it's it's siphoning off her her last bit to live off of and that's an that's a distorted thing, yeah. So um, pretty pretty bad stuff. Let's talk about verse 5 here, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Alex, what does it mean to deny the power of godliness? This is a tricky question. I think uh, we can definitely look at 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, where Paul says, Godliness is profitable for all things, holding promise for this life and the life to come. That same book, chapter 6, verse 6, says godliness is profitable for great gain if accompanied by contentment. So these evil men, uh, they're never going to gain the true rewards of godliness. They're never going to experience the power of a resurrected life or a glorious body to come at the resurrection. Their outward form of godliness, it's going to garner attention. People are going to praise them. They're going to applaud them, pat them on the back. They're going to be called pillars in the church. They're going to be called men worthy to follow. All the while, they're stealing your money. They're sleeping with your wives. They're molesting your children. They're lying through their teeth. They revel in every dark deed. And they will continue to revel until the day Jesus takes revenge on behalf of his sheep. And Jesus will slaughter the wolf once for all. This is the denying of the power of godliness. They think they are not accountable, and they experience none of the true joy of Christianity. What do you think? That's right on the money. You know, they they appear to be godly. They outwardly... They appear to be very religious, but inside they're full of dead men's bones. That's right. Uh, they're whitewashed tombs. Um, probably the same guys that we talked about in the previous episode who were promoting all the the foolish controversies and irreverent babble. That's probably more like um, some kind of spiritual sleight of hand where they get you looking in one direction while they're doing their dark deeds in the corner with another thing. You know, it's just yeah. That's that's what they're trying to do is to get you distracted on this so they can do whatever they it's manipulation. It's a it's a manipulative tactic. So That's right. Um I think that's that all goes into this appearing godly but denying its power. That's right. 
Now, Nick, it talks about how they prey on certain types of women. Right. And then it says these women are always learning, but they never come to a knowledge of the truth. What does that mean? Well, obviously, that's a Tuesday morning ladies Bible class. No, that's terrible. That's awful. <laughs> oh, come on, Nick. Come yeah, on. Yeah, no. Um, <clears throat> now, it's interesting to note that um, that it is descriptive of the women of Ephesus that this is, is, uh, is used here. Um, they are the ones who are always learning from these ungodly creeps, but never come into knowledge of the truth. Now, that could either be knowledge about Jesus and actually knowing him, or it could be, as Jesus talks about in John 8, never coming to knowledge of the truth that will make them free. It'll set them free. Yeah. Um, which is interesting because you got the capture language there. They can be freed if they would just come to knowledge of the truth. But um, that's a good connection. Yeah. Um, what do you What do you think? You know, First Timothy two four says God desires all people to come to a knowledge of the truth, to be saved, and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Uh, I think these women, they probably keep getting caught in a cycle of destruction, and these evil men specifically target these women. It's on purpose. They purposely look for the most vulnerable among us. And so the women in mind, uh, I think they can come to a knowledge of the truth. I think it's possible. But not when their teachers are the predators. Yeah. And not when the predators are specifically seeking them out. So it continues to paint a pretty dark, pretty dark picture, Nick. What else do we have here? I think this is going to bring us to our tough text of the day. Tough text. Verse 8 talks about these guys, Janus and Jambres, who opposed Moses. Wow. Um, Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about who these guys are. Who are Janus and Jambres? Or Mambres? Yeah, that's right. Well, Nick, in my search, uh, I found that one of the uh, early church writers, Origen, He's around the 3rd century A.D., so he's born around 180, dies around 250. He says that Paul got these names from a book called the Book of Janus and Jambres, or actually Mambres, I think is what he says. Mm-hmm. Jambres, Mambres, Banana, Fana, Fofana, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But we have fragments today of that book in the Old Testament pseudopigrapha, and that those fragments, they give an account of the magicians, and they specifically talk about Janus's death and how he died. He died because when he goes up against Moses, God causes a fatal disease to come upon uh, Janus and, uh, and to kill him. And so after Janus dies, Jambres conjures up Janus's soul from the dead, and Janus gives this speech about how he's getting what he deserves how he's being punished and how it's a terrible place and how in this place there is no forgiveness for them pretty interesting stuff if that's the story paul is drawing upon Mm -hmm. Uh, later on in history like much later on there are going to be some jewish targums Uh, targums are aramaic translations of the old testament like targum pseudo jonathan and i think that's the one where you get the idea that these magicians are actually sons of balaam now that's that's very interesting because Second uh, Peter chapter 2, which has a lot of things in common with those bad guys and these bad guys, is that uh, those bad guys in Second Peter 2 are compared to Balaam. These bad guys in Second Timothy 3 are compared to Janus and Jambres. And so I could see how later on people would come up with the idea that you know they're, 
They're even related. They're family. So another Old Testament pseudopigrapha book uh, called The Testament of Solomon, which is a super wild, long, weird book. Anyway, in chapter 25, verse 4, it talks about how Janus and Jambres were the magicians that battled Moses. And the, the reason they could do powerful things, that they could perform signs and wonders, was that there was a demon that they called upon to give them power during their face-off with Moses. And in the Testament of Solomon, you get to talk with that demon. Solomon gets to talk with that demon. And the demon's name is Abizethabu. <laughs> Say that three times fast. Yeah. Abizethabu. Maybe not. It might be a weird curse. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. No, yeah. don't say it. Um, yeah, so there's definitely some weird, interesting stuff. But I think maybe the most important thing there is that if it's the book of Janus and Jambres that Paul is drawing from, uh, the main idea there is that God strikes them dead and they get what they deserve in the afterlife and there's no forgiveness forgiveness for them in the afterlife. And so that might be the most relevant to what's going on here. And and help our listeners out and just briefly, what is, what is Old Testament pseudepigrapha? It's just a, a, an umbrella term. It's a category of writings and books that are not in the Old Testament. They're not in the Apocrypha. Um, there are other writings that were written in the Second Temple era between 500 BC and 100 AD. And so these, these books are often attributed to famous patriarchs in Israel's history. Like and, Solomon or... Or Enoch, yeah. Yeah. And they are um, telling stories that people believe are true um, in the sense that the, the, the main story has, has a lot of truth in it, even though it wasn't really written by the guy who claims the letter is written by. So in other words, they might have known that it wasn't really written by Solomon, but that the story or the truth in the story was true, and so therefore it answered a lot of questions it filled in a lot of gaps, and they copied it and kept it and read it and discussed it and debated it and incorporated it into their idea. And so there's there's truth that they find in these books, which made them uh, popular, some more popular than others. Well, what I found in my search was a similar, similar stuff. These guys aren't, they're not named in the Bible. Exodus chapter 7 through 9 is where you can find Moses' showdown with the magicians in uh in egypt uh they're just called magicians they're not named um they're in the exodus narrative it's the later jewish extra biblical literature like the pseudepigrapha uh that put names on these guys also the dead sea scrolls um <clears throat> these documents that were found in caves uh, near the dead sea back in the 1940s um You'll also find their names in those documents, like the Damascus document. Um, you'll find Janus's uh, name there for one of the magicians, although they say it was his brother. They don't name him, but it's his brother. <clears throat> that would be Jambres in this ca in this case. But um, it's interesting. Jewish Christians, uh, secular Latin and Greek writers, they all reference these guys by name, and so. Um, uh, some suggest that Paul may have gotten the name from, uh, you mentioned Targum Pseudo-Jonathan, so it could have come from that. But um, uh, just interesting, interesting little little historical notes here about these guys and, and where these names came from. Sure. 
let's uh let's move forward here i'm gonna give one last quick note nick okay uh, go for it. so for the dead sea scrolls there are two types of categories one is the dead sea scrolls bible which are anything in the dead sea scrolls that can that are parts of the old testament and then the other dead sea scrolls material are called the sectarian materials and it's just all kinds of non-biblical literature um and that's where you get the Damascus document that you were mentioning. And then also the Targums, um, pseudo-Jonathan Targum is super late. I mean, it's like six, 700 AD. So when people suggest that uh, these late Targums were drawn upon for New Testament writings, you have to understand they're at the same time saying that these New Testament writings are not then really written by first century Christians. They're written mm. much, much later on in history. And then uh, added or altered and put into what we call the New Testament. That's a good point. Good point. So let's. Uh, what's next here? Verse eight talks also about men. My English Standard Version says that they're corrupted in mind. Um, I believe your New American Standard says they're depraved. They have a depraved mind. Uh, Alex, what does it mean to have a depraved mind? Uh, the original language in Greek is kataphthyro. It means to corrupt or to ruin, but the interesting part, it's the only time in the New Testament that this word is used. Um, I don't know what's significant about that. There might be significance, but it really seems that these men are different than struggling believers. That's important to remember, that these aren't Christians who are struggling with sin. They're true believers, but they need to grow still. They're still trying to become more like Christ. That's, that's not who these guys are. Right. These sound more like religious sociopaths. I mean, when you talk about people with a depraved mind, uh, you might be talking about somebody who has gone beyond the point of no return. So are they? Are they beyond the point of no return? How hard, Nick, do you think a person has to work to get this far gone, this far into the darkness? I don't know. It's a good question. We'll leave it there, but they have been rejected in regard to the faith. What does that mean? Well, <clears throat> faith comes by hearing, right? We know that from a different book that Paul wrote, uh, Book of Romans. Faith comes by hearing. So the avenue by which truth comes, which would be the mind in this case, um, you just talked about how it's so corrupted, it's so distorted that nothing can get through. Uh, so therefore... There can be no faith. That's how they've disqualified themselves by their pursuit of darkness and, and all things perverted and things like that. So when that avenue for truth to come is so distorted that nothing nothing is through, there's not going to be faith either. And so I think that's how they're disqualified regarding the faith. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. It, it makes total sense. And if they don't have that change of mind, then there's no repentance. Right. Metanaeo, to change one's mind. True repentance bears fruit. That's not what these guys do. These guys get worse and worse. And that's what you look for. You look for the fruit that they bear, even the fake fruit. Nick, how will their folly be made obvious? Uh, it'll probably be kind of like the the magicians of Egypt, how they were they were exposed over time um, as the the charlatans, the guys who are just doing this sleight of hand stuff. So I think it's prolonged exposure. It's going to make it obvious 
that these ungodly creeps, they're doing nothing more than performing that spiritual sleight of hand. They're masquerading as holy in character, but they're demonstrating by their conduct that they are anything but holy. Um, and you say? You know, I think if Paul is drawing from the book of Janus and Jambres, then in that story, God struck Janus dead. And he drowned Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. That part we know for sure in the Bible. In the Testament of Solomon, the demonic forces that helped Janus and Jambres to do their signs and wonders, they are imprisoned. They're put into spirit prison. The book of Psalms, imprecatory prayers are given for evil men. And I think in this case, imprecatory prayers are needed for these evil men. Uh, there's an angel that strikes Herod dead in Acts 12, 23. I think these men should be fearful of the same thing. I think if anything, their folly will be made apparent either by God striking them down or in the afterlife, the prison cell which awaits them where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It will be made apparent in that day who was really of the Lord and who was masquerading and reveling in their evil deeds. Some of these guys, Nick, they're going to get away with stuff for the rest of their lives. Yeah. But not in the afterlife. Not That's in right. the afterlife. So let's see if we can summarize this then. Who are these evil men, Nick? Why does Paul have such contempt for them? Is Paul justified in all of these names that he calls them? Um, well, it's... <laughs> The Bible, <laughs> it's he's inspired of the Holy Spirit. I think that's probably justification enough. Um, you know, it's it, the list is such a sweeping gamut of descriptions, both of character and conduct, that I'm hesitant to say that Paul has a single group in mind. Um, I'm inclined here to see Paul just kind of doing a, a freestyle flow just a stream of consciousness run on sentence where he just kind of has every and all false teacher in mind as he's writing this. Does that make sense? You know, that's fair. And you might be right. This might be a general list of, of evil deeds. But I do think that if it were specific, mm -hmm. if it were, then this would make it all the more powerful of a plea for Timothy to do his work, to do his job. Uh, if these guys are present, they're there. They're going to keep doing what they do. Then somebody's got to stand up. And Timothy's got to be the man for the job. Paul may be linking uh, their ilk, these evil men, with those who chased him down from town to town with a relentless uh, desire to, to kill him. And the evil things that they did to try and accomplish that. We're going to talk about that in the next question. I mean, he says he had to endorse stuff from Antioch to Iconium to Lystra. What was that about, Nick? Yeah. Um, so it's interesting here because he talks about his persecutions and sufferings, and they were chasing him down from town to town, just as you said. I mean, they he'd show up somewhere, and they'd show up just a few days later. Um, and it's interesting that he recalls uh, these these locations, because as far as I can tell, in the book of Acts, Timothy wasn't with Paul when he was enduring what happened to him uh, in these locations, uh, and this would be during his first missionary trip, Acts 13 and 14. Maybe Lystra, Timothy could have been there, uh, 
Um, that could have been his hometown. You don't run into him until Acts 16, though. So here's what I'm kind of seeing here. Whether whether he was with Paul or not, Timothy, he was aware of the sufferings of Paul. Paul, he probably bore the scars of all the, the beatings that he took. So I think it's a reminder of the certainty of suffering. That's a that's an overall theme throughout this book that we've seen over and over again. Right. So on, so on the one hand, you've got the certainty of the suffering, but on the other hand, you've also got the promise of God's deliverance. And, and you have that also at the end of this verse here, verse 11, yet from all of them the Lord rescued me. So yeah, sufferings, persecutions, those come, but also so does the, the deliverance, the rescue from the Lord. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. I mean, in the book of Acts, you can go back and read these stories. He suffers at Antioch. He's run out of town. That's chapter 13, verse 15. He goes to Iconium, where they try to stone him. That's chapter 14, verses 5 through 6. They don't Mm -hmm. succeed then, so he goes to Lystra. That's chapter 14, verses 19 and 20. And at Lystra, they do stone him, and they do succeed, and they leave him outside of the town for dead. They thought he died. He was that beat up. So he returns back through those towns again. <laughs> That's right. He goes back to each one of those towns. He appoints elders. He encourages them to endure sufferings. That's what you see in chapter 14, verse 21 and 22. So perhaps it was when Paul went back through the towns that Timothy heard the stories of what had just happened. They, he saw the bruises and the cuts and the wounds still uh, scabbing over his body. If if Timothy is from Lystra, like you were saying, then Timothy may have even seen Paul get stoned with his own eyes. And that would be uh, traumatic, to say the least. Yeah, for sure. So it brings a question, Nick. Is persecution necessary for godliness? That's what Paul says. If If we're not persecuted today, does that mean we're not godly? Can the Christian today be godly without persecution? Man, it's a good question. Verse 12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I mean, it's a, he says it as it's a certainty. Um, <clears throat> here's the thing. When we think of persecutions, we probably tend to think of Paul's 195 lashes that he received. That's the 40 lashes minus one multiplied by five. He talks about that in 2 Corinthians 11. We may think of his imprisonments. Um, we can think of all the stuff that he lists there in Second Corinthians chapter eleven. He's got a laundry list there of all the stuff that he endured. Um, but persecution it does vary in degrees of severity. The truism, the principle behind <clears throat> verse twelve is: the world hates Christians. The world hates those who are devoted to Christ. The world is always going to be <clears throat> hostile toward Christians in one form or fashion. Darkness hates light. There's a war going on. And so I think that's the principle behind this. And and if we keep in mind the, the varying degrees of severity of persecution, I believe this comes into focus for us even today. What do you think? I think that perhaps today it is a truism. But from my perspective... Paul does have a specific set of ideas for persecution and what that means for him and for Timothy. 
and I think it was applied to, to Timothy and to him and, and not to us. So we may be persecuted in some abstract way, but Paul and Timothy, they were facing real death, threats of death on a regular basis. I think Paul's statement was absolutely true for the time and audience to whom he writes. So it can be a truism for us today, um, but I think in its truest sense, uh, that's how Paul meant it to be taken to his to his audience. Now, this this kind of talk, it can make Christians nervous. It can say, well, then does anything in the Bible apply to me at all? Since none of it was written to me, are you saying none of it applies to me? No, no, that's not what I'm saying. Right. We work hard as preachers and teachers to walk that bridge that gets you from the first century church to today. And that's a hard bridge to walk sometimes. So I'm just saying we don't want to take away the depth of power for the real imminent threat of death to Timothy and Paul by watering it down and saying that it's just like us today when people defriend us from Facebook for posting a Christian meme. Yeah, It's like that's <laughs> not the same, and that's not you fulfilling this verse. This verse has very powerful, imminent context. And I just don't want to take away from that. I guess that's all. So maybe it's a both and. Nick, when we talk about the world, though, is it getting better and better? That'd be post-millennial context. Is it getting worse and worse? That's both a futurist and pre-millennial context. Is that how we should be viewing uh, verse 13 when he says, evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse? Yeah, so... um... Our post-millennial friends, they believe that the world was going to get better and better, that we would, and I suppose this has been the historical position. I suppose there may still be some post-millennialists out there, but it's, um, I don't think it's the majority position anymore. We would reach this golden age kind of of heaven on earth, it would last for a thousand years, then Christ would come and, and reign on earth. And by the way, even that thousand years was kind of a, that was a figure for them too. It could have been shorter, could have been longer, but um, I, this was, I believe, the, the dominant view that was held in the 19th century. And then World War One came, and war has an interesting way of adjusting our theologies. Of course, a quick read here of Paul and um, uh, elsewhere also, um, Romans 6, verse 19, lawlessness leads to more lawlessness. Um, but this here in verse 13 about evil people, they go from bad to worse. Um, I think that should have alerted our post-millennial friends that actually people, when they're disconnected and independent of God, they don't get better. They get worse. Um, that's my takeaway here. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. And there's, you know, there's a, there's something to be said for for seeing a trend. Are we trending upwards? Things getting better. Are we tr- trending downwards? You know, the world's just spiraling out of control. Uh, people seem to be interpreting that based on their current circumstances. Like you said, it was the most popular view in the 1800s that things were trending upward. Lots of Christians were being uh, made. Lots of converts were being made. And then civil war breaks out and doesn't seem like things are getting better anymore. 
and then it picks up a trend again but then world war one breaks out so yeah i like i like how you take a step back there and you kind of see the bigger picture i myself am more of a cycles guy mm-hmm. i think it's the world will seem like it's worse the closer that your particular nation comes to crumbling um if this is the end of the world in mind that paul has in second timothy three then it seems strange that we have the same evil things today as we did in his day in the past albeit in our current circumstances a lot of these evil things are in the shadows depending on where you live but how would this distinction this worse getting worse how would that find any meaning for timothy in the first century church then if it's talking about things getting worse and worse at the end of time or things progressively trending downward for the last 2000 years I'm not sure. That's that's why I, I like listening to other perspectives. I think the Predator's perspective has a strong qu- uh, case to be made for this question. Uh, it says that the height of Jewish persecution against Christians was increasing worse and worse leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem. And it makes you ask, well, who was it that ran Paul out of town in the book of Acts and almost killed him a few times? <laughs> it was... It was the persecuting Jews. So, definitely food for thought. Nick, how would these evil men and imposters deceive, or even better, how would they themselves be deceived? Um, Yeah, so someone has said that self-deception is the most common and the most damaging problem in companies. Um, You read... Uh, literature aimed at uh, companies, aimed at businesses, things like that. Self-deception is right at the top of the list as a as a very common and a very damaging problem. Um, it's interesting when when you love self, it's others who are the problem. And these guys, the list started off with lovers of self back in verse two. Huh. You're in the box. That's the language that they use for this. They're, you're in the box of self-deception, and I think that's where these guys are here in verse uh, 13, they're in the box of self-deception. Um, compounding the problem seems to be that these guys, just as we talked about, they're manipulators, and they will say and do whatever they have to do in order to get their particular narrative to win out. And, um, and I already read it earlier, but it's, it's a powerful quote that when the center of gravity in an individual shifts from God to self, there's a plethora of sins that spring up from that. So I think all this deception it starts with themselves. I know that's not exactly how the text reads, but that's where it's going to start is being deceived themselves. They're self-deceived, and then that deception is going to bleed out into others. Yeah. No, I think that's well said, right on the money. Um, there can even be some deception used by God to bring about judgment when our podcast in second timothy chapter 2 came along we saw that there are certain people who rejected uh, the truth and they loved wickedness and so god sent them a, a powerful deluding influence so that they would believe what is false and so can tie into some of that depravity of mind some of that going beyond the point of no return and uh just for our audience um let you know when I say depravity, I'm not talking about um, the Calvinistic view of depravity. I'm not talking about uh, 
the state of mind in which all people exist until you know the spirit comes and, and transforms them. Um, that's called total depravity. I don't believe in that at all, but I do think I do think that one can, through their own will, through their own choices, get to a state of having a depraved mind, and that's where these guys are at. So that's a good distinction. Yeah. Well, what else do we have here, Nick? Looks like in verse fourteen, right? Um, Paul says that Timothy should remember who he has learned from. Uh, why would Paul emphasize who Timothy learned from in verse 14? I like what uh, this verse from Longfellow, he says, uh, lives of great men all remind us we can make our lives sublime and departing leave behind us footprints in the sands of time, footprints that perhaps another sailing o'er life's solemn main, a forlorn and shipwrecked brother seen shall take heart again. I think that's kind of what Paul's talking about here is the example that his mother and grandmother, uh, Lois and Eunice, had left, that should stimulate them, excuse me, stimulate Timothy, forlorn Timothy, right? As he's uh, perhaps discouraged, he's facing an uphill battle against these false teachers. Um, So you got this forlorn young minister. As he ministers in Ephesus, Timothy, um, remember the example of uh, those who came behind you. They've left the footprints in the sands of time. And uh, so take heart, Timothy. Take heart and soldier forth. Um, That makes sense? Yeah, I like that poem. Who wrote that again? Uh, Henry Wordsworth Longfellow. It's called A Psalm of Life. Um, My grandma, she memorized it. I memorized it. We like to go back and forth and reciting it. Hat tip, Grandma Ruth. Is it a song? Uh, not that I'm aware of. It's just a poem, nine nine stanzas. We should uh, turn that into a song. Let that be a note to any listener out there who composes music. Find that Longfellow poem. Turn it into a worship song. That'd be good. <laughs> um, <clears throat> speaking of what Timothy learned and who he learned it from, verse 15 talks about how he's been acquainted with the sacred writings from childhood. Um, Alex, what are the... What are the sacred writings that Timothy learned from his childhood? Uh, That's a good question. Uh, I was thinking about, well, uh, childhood. There are different, very specific terms for stages of life. And I was like, what's the original language there? And then I was surprised it pulled up the word brephos, which means fetus or infant or baby. And so we're not talking about a child who can talk or read. We're talking about very very small baby maybe still in the womb so it's kind of funny i mean it's almost like he's saying pregnant eunice was at the synagogue and timothy would give a good kick for the amen and (laughs) (laughs) makes it sound like this boy was saturated with with truth from day one or maybe even the first trimester i don't know i can tell you one thing these sacred writings though they're likely not the new testament likely not the new testament new testament writings came along uh quite a bit after Timothy's birth, even if he's a young man, you know, in 20 to 30 years old, you would be just on the very edge of the beginning of letters being written. So it's likely not New Testament sacred writings. It's probably Old Testament sacred writings. What do you think, Nick? I think that's right on the money. Um, I get the picture of, you know, like the the expectant mother who has the headphones playing Mozart or Bach or something <laughs> yeah. on her. St- I mean, that's, that's, 
I guess what it was like was, you know, this this was a woman who herself had the Old Testament flowing through her veins, as it were, and she wanted to and did impart that upon uh, uh, to Timothy. And so it's interesting, you know, we talked about Janus and Jambres earlier, that story, it comes from the Old Testament book of Exodus, but the names come from other extra-biblical text. Um, I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's clear that both Christians and Jews are reading books outside of our Bible. Right. And how, They read widely. Yeah. Now, how they thought about those books, what they considered those books to be, as far as helpful or truthful, uh, you got to go figure that out. And the best place to start is to go read. Go read those books. Don't be afraid. Read. Read widely. Nick, uh, so what do you what do you think Paul has in mind with all Scripture? Then is this kind of the same idea? Yeah, I think so. I think it's the Old Testament. Of course, you know, Peter, Second Peter, three verse seventeen. He's going to cite Paul's letters as Scripture, but it doesn't seem like Paul realizes that as he's writing what he writes, that he's actually writing Scripture as he's doing it. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think. What Paul has in mind there with all Scripture being breathed out by God is the Old Testament. No, I think I think that's right, which is a sober reminder for us because we go around quoting 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And then we talk about how, yeah, we need to memorize these verses, but we're always memorizing New Testament verses. What what place does the Old Testament have in the community and teaching of the church today? Um, it, it was the Bible of the first century. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's something to, to really reflect upon. We don't want to be missing out on three-quarters of our Bible yeah. just because we've forgotten how to teach from it. We just need to step up our game. So he says that all Scripture will equip us for every good work. You'll be equipped for every good work. Alex, what does it mean to be equipped for every good work there in verse 17? Uh, The original language for equipped is exartizo. It means to bring to an end, to finish. That's interesting. That's not what I think of when I think of equipped, but it has (laughs) this definite goal of finishing something, accomplishing something. Well, chapter 4, Paul says he'll finish the course talking about his own death and pending well timothy needs to finish too something has uh, been started in him through his gift of the spirit he has begun his work as a minister of the gospel and he needs to finish that work maybe i'm overthinking it but i really think paul is calling timothy to lay down his life or at least to pick up his work in a way that he knows will likely lead to his death get this tradition has it we don't know for sure but tradition has it that timothy was martyred that he was killed under emperor nerva in ad 97 so when paul talks about um, the scriptures and the sacred writings and those preparing him to finish his job this may be paul's condensed version of hebrews chapter 11 the hall of faith all the people who lived by faith and died by faith. This may be Paul's little short take version of that entire chapter saying, yeah, there there are these cloud of witnesses of martyrs and you need to uh, be ready to join them. And he does. 
history shows that he he was killed in AD 97. What do you think, Nick? Uh, that, that makes sense. And I would just uh, come alongside and and uh, the the way I typically teach this, you know, the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Um, in other words, because we have Scripture, it's been breathed out by God. We have all that we need to do what God wants us to do. Um, that's just kind of my monosyllabic, single sentence summary <laughs> of uh, what's go- what what Paul is saying here to Timothy. It's me- we have all we need to do what God wants us to do. It's memorable. I like it. And I think that's going to do it for us today. We'll move forward to chapter 4 in the next episode. Yeah, that's right. Next week will be our last chapter for 2 Timothy, and then we'll be moving on to another book, perhaps uh, Colossians, maybe Philippians, maybe an Old Testament book again, Habakkuk. Um, What do you think, Nick? Sky's the limit. Okay. (laughs) Well, if you have any questions, send them to swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. That's swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. Go into the iTunes store or the Google Play store and uh, subscribe to the podcast, download all the episodes, leave a review, let us know what you think so we can get the word out about this podcast. Thanks for listening. Uh, We'll see you next time on another episode of Swordplay. Swordplay.